Hi, I'm Caitlin Prest, and I am here in your ear to tell you about a very incredible new show called Asking For It. Asking For It is a darkly comedic series that follows a queer femme singer whose history of violence finds her no matter how many times she runs away. It has an original soundtrack, and it'll make you laugh, cry, and feel a little bit less alone. Asking for it. Subscribe now. This is a CBC Podcast. Hey, I'm AC Rowe. This is The Doc Project. So, I live across the road from a primary school, and every morning is pandemonium. There are the horns, and the school bell, and the pleading. Please take your backpack. Please don't hit your brother. Please put your shoes back on. And if you've ever been within a block of a schoolyard, you know what comes next. At least a hundred small voices absolutely screaming their heads off. Sometimes, if I miss my alarm, that is the sound I wake up to, which, once I'm done freaking out, is actually kind of nice. These are screams of joy. At worst, terrified delight. Which, sure, does not make it pleasant exactly, but it does change how I hear it, if not what I hear. The only other place I've heard a sound like it is in the award-winning documentary you are about to hear. It comes to us as part of our special relationship with the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. Sharon and Ken Greenock live in Australia. They are parents to seven kids, a mix of biological and foster kids. And in the same way that the screaming in the schoolyard across from my apartment is the sound of fun, in the Greenock household, screaming is the soundtrack to a lot of love. Producer Kirsty Melville from the ABC will take it from here. wanted a real soundtrack of our life. That's it. That's it. Justin screaming. Use your words, Justin. Mum, saying that. Use your words. Welcome to the vexed, loud, emotionally high and low world of the Greenock family. Seven years ago, they fostered their first child, oblivious to the grief, the chaos, the change, and the love it would bring to their home. Hey, Justin, want to have a battle? Hey, Justin, do you want to have a battle? It's a fairly ordinary afternoon, I have to say. And yeah, This is Mum Sharon. How are you, love? Good. And Dad Kim. Someone's got to do this, and I think some people still think we're mad for doing it, and I think we're mad for doing it. Wow, this is, place is fantastic. It is fantastic. Large, loud and chaotic, as you've gathered, but also happy. The love and colour and joy of this home is written onto the family dining table, literally. A free-for-all of love messages, drawings and inclusiveness. Blending into the crazy are two large, buffy dogs that barrel their way through the family, one oblivious fish and two cats that, unsurprisingly, I never see. So I'm Sharon Greenock and I'm 54 years old. I've been married for 30 years and we have seven children Our first three children, we call them our biohazards. They're our biological children. And in the last eight years, we've added four more people. They're all here forever. So my kids are Scarlett, 22, 
finally about to leave home and going to be uh, a criminologist. Campbell is 21. No, not towards Kirsty. And he's an actor and he's also a manny. I'm going to take it off you. You've got to promise me you're going to stop it. Juliet's 19. She wants to do acting as well. Come on, Jai. Jai is about to turn 10. Jai is the biggest challenge in our lives, but he's also one of the biggest joys. Why did Campbell take your lightsaber off you? Are you tired? No. Are you worried? No. Are you angry? Jasmine is six, going on 16. She's the girl we were meant to have. Where are you going in your car? Magic show. A magic show. Bye. See you later. She has the best imagination. Justin is special and he's hard work and his brain is the most fascinating organ I have ever come across. What is that? This is a microphone. And his smile will get you every time. Are you playing Star Wars? I'm a stormtrooper. A Darth Vader. Adrian is four and he's a dude and I'm absolutely convinced he's going to play rugby union for Australia one day. I don't have one quiet one. I have seven and there's no quiet ones. They've all got big personalities. They're exhausting and exhilarating at the same time. People go, oh my gosh, you're amazing. I have friends who take teenagers. I'm like, what? You are kidding me. You know, they think I'm crazy. I think they're crazy. Come here, babe. So there's 23 months between the youngest three. So <laughs> you could biologically just do it, is what I say. And Justin and Adrian, the siblings, they have got the same tummy mummy, we say. I send her photos every month or so and just see if, you know, see if she's okay. And, but then just out of the blue yesterday, she sent me a message and said, thank you for giving my boys a loving home. Tell them I think of them often. And she sent me that saying, being a parent is not just about DNA. Parenting comes from the heart or something. I thought, what a nice thing to send to me. Oh, dear. Come here, babe. So what did you guys think when your mum and dad first brought up the idea of fostering? I always remember when we got the phone call to ask about Jai and it was crazy time. We weren't supposed to be taking any kids yet. We had my mum's parents over, her sister, her kids all over. Our house was getting renovated and we got the call for Jai and we were all sort of like, oh, what do we do? What do we do, this poor little boy? And Juliet was like, mum. How can we not? Like, there's this little three-year-old boy out there that just needs someone. And I think it was, like, out of Juliet's little 12-year-old mouth, we thought, oh, yeah. And I guess that's what it's been like ever since. You just have to go with it because you think maybe it's tough for us, but it's a hell of a lot worse where they came from. Yeah, the first day that Jai came, I think he looked more like a dog than human. He, well, he was on all fours. All that he could say was swear words. And, like screaming and trying to bite the dogs, lick the dogs and just be with the dogs. It's just a major screw-up that it took three years for him to be taken into care because, you know, those are the crucial years for a kid. And, I mean, he's terrified of the dark, of noises at night, you know, the rustling of the trees. Like deeply. Like deeply when you're actually terrified because of what I can only imagine that he had to go through. You, me, big time. Hey, so listen, now that you've started talking and you're in a better mood... Uh, not saying anything. 
You don't want to talk about how you came to be in our family? You can show her the photo of Mummy Amanda. We've got the most beautiful photo of Mummy Amanda, haven't we? Go on, go and show her. I'd love to see it. Jai's come a long way in the seven years he's been part of the Greenock family. He's a beautiful kid, thoughtful, intense and very bright. His eyes pull you in and spit you out, feeling just a little bit more raw than before you met him. He takes me into his room and the first thing he shows me? His beloved books. So my room's got all different kinds of books like novels, like Harry Potter... Philosopher's Stone, Chamber of Secrets, Prisoner of Azkaban, Goblet of Fire, Order of the Phoenix, Half-Blood Prince, Deathly Hallows, Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, Part 2, Part 3, Part 4 and all the parts. Then Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, Quidditch Through the Ages, The Tales of Beedle, The Bard. <laughs> but his most prized possession is a photo of his mum. He plays with it the whole time we talk. That's my mum and that's my mum's sister. Do you see her very often? Sometimes. And when I go there, she gives me presents and we get to do cool things like go to the movies and stuff. How does it make you feel to see Mummy Amanda? Happy and sad when I have to leave. Do you remember the day that you you came to live with Mummy Sharon and Daddy Kim? Not really. All I remember is that I was saying swear words and stuff. I don't really remember anything from my childhood. Do you remember living with Mummy Amanda? Yeah. She let me watch, like, bad movies, gave me bad medicine, and also never looked after me. She still really misses me. What did she say to you last time you saw her? I can't really remember because it was last year, so I'm starting to get a bit worried. What do you worry about? Well, at night time and stuff, um... I have an issue going to sleep. What goes through your head? Scary things. Like... Like shooting, killing, violence. And when you say that you're you're starting to get worried about Mummy Amanda, what are you worried about? That she's getting sick, but she said she's fine and stuff. And she said... That this is the way I am now, so, yeah, it's kind of freaking me out a bit. Whenever I say, would you like to catch up with Mummy Amanda, he always says yes. He does like to see her. Like, he used to seem quite worried, a bit anxious when we were with her, but I feel like he's a bit more of himself now. And he asks her questions, and he has said to her, why don't I live with you? What'd she say? She's very, very sweet about it. She said... You know, Jai, I'm just not very good at doing this mum thing, she said. You know, I've always loved you, and she said, but I I just wasn't very good at it at all. I think Sharon's better at it than me, she'd say. I don't know that she has totally taken responsibility for, you know, the neglect that he suffered and the trauma that he suffered, but I think she fully accepts that he's in a good place and that she, you know, calls him our boy. You know, when you're getting ready for a visit, can you describe for me what's in your head and how your body feels? I feel happy that I'm going to see her, and my body feels like runny and jumpy, and sad. 
saying goodbye and then not seeing her for a long time. Does that affect how you are in this family when you come back? Sad, more sad than normal. Grumpy and shouty and stuff. And what's it like having so many brothers and sisters? Stressful and annoying. Everything I wanted. If I get scared and stuff, this is all I wanted, like, to be with them and be safe. Is a fatalist, which is very sad for children to feel so fatalistic, you know? I'll never be able to do it, I'll do it wrong, I won't be able to achieve it, so... I don't think you consciously know when you parent the first time round that you're building your children's self-esteem, whereas I feel like I really know. Like, I'm literally building self-esteem or not on some days. How do you go about working out what behaviour and characteristics are their character and what is because of the situation they've come from? It's a really good question because as they get a little bit older, you start to feel more pressure from the outside world in a way, so of more judgments, you know? So if the children are displaying behaviours that don't fit into the norm, you get the looks from people. And it's sort of made us to start questioning, you know, are we always using background trauma as an excuse? Or are we, you know, is that just plain naughty, you know? And then there are moments that are just glorious, you know? When Jai rode a bike for the first time, he screamed, it's like freedom! You did, Jai. You did, Jai. You're pretty good at riding your bike, aren't you, Missy? I can make it. You can whistle too, can't you? (laughs) That's pretty good, whistling for a five-year-old. That little whistler is Jasmine, or little Missy. Not long after Jai came to live with the Greenox, they got an emergency call from the department. Could they take a newborn baby? We didn't know whether we were going to take her or not and we and Juliet just kept going, please, please, we want a baby sister, we'll be so good, we'll change her nappy, please, Mum, we'll feed her, we'll give her a bottle. And she was the sweetest little baby, wasn't she? She was so good. Did you do all those things? Yeah, we did actually, yeah, yeah. We didn't back out of it all. Um, So Jasmine joined our family at six days old. She came straight from hospital where she was born. And it was love at first sight. We were smitten, you know, a little girl and we dressed her in all these. I mean, she just was gorgeous. And for about the first six months of her life, she had very little contact with her bio parents, a young couple particularly young mum. So quite quickly the department started to talk about her being long-term and being part of our forever family. AC here. Coming up, Sharon and Ken's eldest biological daughter, Scarlett, on her life as a foster sister. Hi, I'm Caitlin Prest, and I am here in your ear to tell you about a very incredible new show called Asking For It. Asking For It is a darkly comedic series that follows a queer femme singer whose history of violence finds her no matter how many times she runs away. It has an original soundtrack, and it'll make you laugh, cry, and feel a little bit less alone. Asking for it. 
Subscribe now. We've always been as much a part of like raising them as mum and dad has. And is it, have there been moments when you've resented that? No, I've never resented it. Sometimes I'm like, oh my god, just one lying in, or like really one more smelly nappy. Are you kidding me? Yeah. But I've never thought like I wish it wasn't like this. And I think even at your lowest point, it's even when you have those moments and you're just like, oh, but all my. Even when you think all my friends who are 21, they get to like lie in every weekend, and the wishing that you could do that isn't enough to wish we didn't have them. Why? One of the things that I always say to people when they say, "Oh, we've been thinking about doing fostering," is I say it will be the best thing you do for your biological children, because it's the best thing mum and dad did for us. Because we were the epitome of white middle-class kids who didn't know anything. I remember my friends when we first started fostering saying, "Where did Jack come from?" around the corner like his house was opposite where I used to get my eyebrows done we lived in a bubble and I think fostering brought us out of the bubble and at the same time we just got four more people to love like four more siblings it's it's cool it's fun you know I mean it's hard but it's fun mainly (laughs) when you got them did you expect that you would have them permanently no we didn't really The sort of line that the department says is the goal is always to return to biological family. And often you don't know the whole picture when they first come. Becomes part of the journey more than anything. Um, Discovering all the possible traumas. All the debris and layers because people start to see more levels of neglect and then it starts to come into your world well are we the family that this child will stay with? I think especially when they've come very little, you start to feel anxious that they'll go back. So you start to feel, I don't want them to go back and start to feel uncomfortable about that feeling. And then you're trying to be objective at the same time and think, you know, what's the best thing for this child? And you're advocating for this child or really if you let your own heart get involved you know so we certainly never set out to have four extra children forever in our family but then one day the thing that many foster parents dread happened when jasmine was about nine months old her parents started to turn up to contacts and started to be a bit better if you like and so the department decided to look at reunification for her she uh we were, we were heartbroken. We were worried. Kim and I threw ourselves into all those meetings with Gusto as her advocate, which in itself was very trying. It is a bit of a culture in the department. And this is a generalisation because, of course, I've worked with individual social workers who I think are extraordinary human beings. It's an easy position to take for some workers in the system to say that foster carers are anti-reunification. We almost had to lean towards being aggressive in advocating for her. After months and months of tussling between the Greenox, her birth parents and the department, Jasmine was sent back to live with her parents, along with her older sister who was fostered by a friend of Sharon's. Jasmine was 14 months old. Did you feel it was a wrong decision? I, I thought they could have done it differently. I thought that was stressful for a young mum. I thought that they weren't doing enough drug testing and I thought they dragged it out, which I thought caused trauma. And looking back, 
I think they should have kept us involved to help the family. I mean, if there were going to be any carers who could have helped her parents. I remember the caseworkers took me and um, Juliet out for coffee and I was saying, you know what my view is, this isn't going to work, you're dreaming. And uh, I remember one of the caseworkers just kept saying, oh, but she needs to be with her biological family. And I just said, well, she was six days old when she came to us. She doesn't know her biological family. She needs love and she needs an actual home where she actually has food and parents who are capable and willing to look after her. And I'm not saying that her parents don't love her, but sometimes they make the wrong choices. The thing is, removing a child is often a subjective decision, not necessarily an objective one. Personally, I'm thankful I'm not making those decisions because I think it'd be really hard to make. You've had to live with the fallout, though, of those decisions. I think the decision in itself at the time wasn't a crazy decision, but I do think there was some naivety because whilst you're hoping it might happen, the child's still going through that traumatic process. Well, the day we had to say goodbye to her, the dread had been building and building and building. I noticed that Kim put his sunglasses on at 7 o'clock in the morning. I thought, oh, so he's obviously feeling a bit teary or something. And that was the day I thought, we should never, ever have done this. You know, what have I done to my children? I've just broken all of their hearts. And the lady who was coming to pick her up, she'd picked up Jasmine regularly for her contacts to see her parents. So when she pulled up, I just said to her, You know, Jasmine didn't have a clue. She had no idea. She thought she was coming back, I suppose, like she had done before. And I just said to the lady, you just need to take her quickly. I'm going to give her one hug and then you just need to put her in the car and we're turning around. And that's what we did. And it was just horrendous. Like, I'd written her a letter and I'd written her parents a letter telling them how well they'd done and that people don't get their children returned and that this was a massive thing that they'd achieved and to work hard and ask for help. And I mean, I prayed for her not to come back. I prayed for her to stay and not come back, you know? As it happened, she came back after a year, you know, in the most difficult of circumstances, you know, they were re-traumatised all over again. And we've had to deal with that in the preceding years since she's been back with us. And I think overall that situation was avoidable. It was Boxing Day, I remember, and me and my two older sisters had been um, out of the movies. Um, Dad picked us up. And so once we'd all sat in the car, he just turned around and he just said, oh, she's home and started to cry. Her mum had left the family home some months before, so Dad had been trying to go solo on his own, and um, he obviously just couldn't cope anymore, so he took the girls to some friend's house and asked them to watch them for a couple of hours, and then he never came back. And it was coming up to Christmas, so these friends thought they'd keep them for Christmas Day, and they just called Crisis Care on Boxing Day and said, can you take these two little girls? And thankfully, we had made them record that if the girls ever came back into care that we were to be contacted first. And she came back and she just looked like a little urchin. She was filthy. I remember she had this awful haircut and a big bruise on her forehead. I guess it was like meeting another person because she'd been changed so dramatically. She was a quite different girl than the one that left. The one that left was, for want of a better word, inverted commas, normal little girl. The one that came out was traumatised, angry, uh, distrustful anxious and scared. She wasn't great. She wasn't great at all. She looked just the same, but she looked different, you know. Her eyes looked different. How were her eyes different? 
She just looked like she'd seen stuff. She just looked like she... She just looked like, you know, a two-and-a-half-year-old shouldn't look, really. And then, you know, she gave us a run for our money for the next two years because, I don't know, I always thought in her mind she must have thought we gave her away. But who are we to judge, you know, the bio families? I know a lot of the history of my bio mums particularly, actually, and my bio dads, and, you know, they're not always good. And, you know, some people overcome adversity and some people don't. And lots of my bio family have been given really big hurdles. Sounds like you've got, I mean, you've obviously got very good relationships with them. Have you ever had any resistance from this? Oh, yes, very much so. In the early days especially, and I understand it, pain, the pain must be. I think they see you as part of the department and part of the plot. When there have been issues, what have they tended to be about? They've tended to be like boyfriends of bio mums and things and, you know, got a bit stroppy and we've had a few threats, you know, we'll steal him back or I'm taking you to court. I've had my workplace phoned, I've had... I'm going to wait for you outside your workplace. I've had a few issues like that where I had to involve the police. Campbell, yeah. both of them have melon first. Do they? Before their pancakes? Stormtroopers have melon first. I know you don't think you're amazing, but you really are. At the end of the day, someone's got to do this, and I think some people still think we're mad for doing it, and I think we're mad for doing it. But there's always going to have to be someone to look after these children and... We're capable and we're in a position where we can do it, so... And extra amazing now, because listen to this. Good, isn't he? Look at him, he's just so happy curled up against your chest there. Yes, you're hearing that right. It's a new little baby. Just days before Christmas, the Greenox brought home a four-day-old baby boy. And that makes eight, three bio kids and five foster children. This little bub is the nephew of the two youngest boys. His mum is their big sister. And so the Greenocks have known her for a long time. Oh, hi, love. How are you? We've got the pram out. Yeah, well, we didn't have the pram out because we'd given everything away. We'd literally given every single baby thing away. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we've got him. He's just been home for two hours. And there he is, fast asleep. I know, he's tiny, isn't he? You forget how little they are, you know. But, yeah, he had a bottle and he's gone to sleep. He needs a new room. I know. Oh, my God, how do you feel? Oh, good. It feels good to get him home because we've kind of known for a little while that he was probably coming. And I've been to the maternity hospital this morning and it's gone really well, you know. Mum and I and him went for coffee after. His mum? Yeah. Yeah. How was that? She was good, actually. She was good. I mean, she had a few tears, but I said, just breathe now and go back and get your stuff from the hospital. And they'd given her a taxi voucher, so she was going home. And Gosh, she's lucky that she knows you. We talked about that, and we said, and she said, that makes me feel better that I can message her anytime. Because if he'd gone to other people that, in a way, weren't sort of part of the family, because we are, because we've got her two brothers, she wouldn't have their phone number... That takes ages to build that relationship, you know. And did she have any choice at all about this? No, she didn't have any choice. It was, it's really interesting, you know, because it's actually a warrant. 
I mean, it has to be, doesn't it? You can't take people's children away from them without it being completely legal. And so she didn't have a choice. No, she, I was at the meeting where she discussed, you know, if I did this, if I did that, if I did this. And they said, well, that's, that's all the stuff you're going to have to do once he's here. Turn up to see him and, you know, do the right thing. Who'd have thought? Who'd have thought? I know. I know. I know. We have, we have already had a few. Are you too mad? And we went, well, we, we established that quite a while ago. Watch out! Oh! That was too hard! <laughs> <laughs> that story was produced by Kirsty Melville. The sound engineer was David LeMay. It came to us as part of a trade with the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, where we played an episode from the show Earshot, and they played a Doc Project episode. That episode was two stories, all about voices. In the first story, Gretel Kahn, a journalist with CBC Montreal, tries to get rid of her Panamanian accent and learns a lesson in the process. It doesn't matter how hard I try, there's always this lick of otherness in my speech that says I am a foreigner, like zebra or achievement or golden retriever. The second story spanned 10 years, following a teacher whose voice can't get any louder than a whisper. To listen to that show, scroll back in your Doc Project podcast feed. You're looking for the episode called What's in a Voice? It should be about five episodes back. The Doc Project is produced by Kent Hoffman, Allison Cook, and me, our digital producers are Althea Manasin and Tahiat Mahboub. I'm AC Rowe. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.